Well, this has certainly been an encouraging morning thus far. Thankful for uh, praise offering to God in song and uh, worship through uh, baptism and that testimony. Thank you for being here today. As many of you know, this is our, uh, our first weekend with some uh, altered protocols, and uh, I'm not going to get into what all those were. Brad already went through those, but I am going to urge us as a church, as these things continue to shift, uh, that we continue to apply the principle that has been uh, core to our church for a long time. Uh, first of all, it's all about him. Okay. Secondly, let's keep the main thing the main thing. And thirdly, there's a text in Colossians that comes to my mind which says, clothe yourself with love. Okay, clothe yourself with love. And what that means for uh, us in this time, I think, is that we really want to put other people's preferences, comfort level, uh, ahead of our own. And since we're going to have a lot of that going on between services and all that, I would encourage us to uh, think about what the other person uh, what their comfort level is, and then, and then accommodate yourself to them. If they're wearing a mask, that's their comfort level, okay? Um, I'm planning on kind of being on and off, on and off all morning, uh, because we want to be all things to all people, and uh, to not let that be a barrier. So close yourself with love, and we will uh, we'll get through this in, in good unity. What is a church? What is a church. You know, that is a highly debated question. And there are a lot of people that have a lot of different opinions about what the church is and, and what it should be and what makes up a church. There's a lot of ways to describe a church. The gathered redeemed, the representation of God on earth, the pillar and foundation of the truth, these and many others. I, I remember when I was a, a child, some of you maybe grew up like me, I was taught about the church this way. This is the church. This is the steeple. Open the door and see all the people. All right, some of you were raised that way, just like me. I hope you realize that's awful theology. Like, whoever invented that should be really struck from the record of church history because it's just so errant. In fact, I'd like to suggest today that we uh, modify that a little bit, okay? This is the building, this is the steeple. Never forget, the church is the people, all right? Okay, the church is the people. Now, if you're clapping now, you're gonna love this sermon, okay? Because this is where we're going today with the message entitled, The Church is People. People. This is often lost in all of the philosophizing about what the church should be and how it should act and all of this is, it's lost often that the church is people like real, normal, human beings. And I'm looking at a lot of them right now. People like you and me. And this is lost to our detriment. Our church is, is people, okay? We're not primarily an organization. We are not primarily a uh, nonprofit. We are not primarily a charitable institution. We are people. People are the church. The church is people. And one person who very clearly understood this was the Apostle Paul. 
And uh, I love the fact that with Paul, we, we do not have an ivory tower sort of theologian uh, who is distant from the, the, the real people of the world. We, we don't have a, a celebrity apostle who writes the books and preaches the sermons, but you know, he's, he, you, you never see him. No, Paul loved people, and he didn't just love them like generally, he loved them individually. I think about uh, that moment in the uh, Philippian jail when uh, Paul is in chains and there's an earthquake, a miracle from God, an earthquake, and all the doors swing open and all the chains come off and you know all these guys, could, they could run out and the punishment on a, on a Roman jailer for that would be that his life would be taken. And he's about, he draws his sword, he's about to take his own life knowing what was gonna happen. And, and what does Paul do? He, he shouts out, we're still here. Now, for me, in a moment like that, I might be like, go ahead. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm tired of this jail and you're the one keeping me here. But no, he has a heart for people. Even that jailer, he goes to his house and the whole family become followers of Jesus. So over and over, we have this example from Paul of, of loving people, loving people like you and me. And the reason that he did that is that Jesus loves people, okay? Individual people. Yes, he loves the world, John 3, 16. But it's never lost on Jesus that the world is made up of individual people. Now, we're gonna feel this apostolic love for people in a passage that I'm gonna guess, if you're reading through Romans, many of us would be tempted to skip over, okay? We get to chapter 16, and by the way, can I just say, uh, we've been going verse by verse through Romans for over three years now, and if our series was a, uh, uh, an airplane flight, uh, the, the, the flaps are deployed and the wheels are down. We're about to land this thing, okay? We are in the last chapter of Romans, and uh, this thing is almost done, but we do not wanna just go, oh, okay, we're almost done and, and skip ahead. I wanna ring everything. I, this, is, this is good Bible teaching right here where you're just ringing it out. It's for everything you can get, and we wanna do that with Romans, and we are going to do that. I hope you get a sense of that even today. Again, in a passage that it's easy to kind of be like, oh, okay, we're moving on, okay? We're just gonna kind of skip over this, but there are all these wonderful nuggets of truth here in this text, okay? Here in chapter 16, Paul greets, by name, 26 different people in the Roman church, okay? Now, here's the thing. He's never been there. <laughs> it's one of the challenges of chapter 16. When you read this, and you're like, how would he possibly know all of these people? He's never been to the Roman church. Now, some of them he's met through the travels and do not forget that in that day, there was an extensive road system. All roads lead to Rome. And so uh, to be in Rome was to have access to all, really many other parts of the country. And so Paul has met many of these people, but a lot of them he has not met. He only knows of them. And yet he writes to them and he greets them. So I'm gonna read the text now, and I need to ask for some grace from you because uh, this list of names, I may not pronounce exactly all of them uh, correctly. They aren't exactly Bob's and Jane's here, okay? And if I don't get it right, well then I'll let you come up next service and give it a go. So here we go, Romans 16, verse one. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, 
a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved, I just want to say Stacy. <laughs> Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissist. Some of you are like, I grew up in that family too. <laughs> Greet these workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet uh, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Neros, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I think I deserve applause for that, okay? I butchered several of them. Hopefully in heaven they'll forgive me for that. So how do you tackle a text like this? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three of the most famous people in this, and then we're going to look at the rest of them in a more sort of general and broad way. So we're going to begin with the one in the list who does not receive a greeting but receives a commendation, and this is Phoebe. Again, look at verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Now, Phoebe. Phoebe here is described as a sister, as a servant, and as a supporter. Okay, sister, first of all. This means that she is a she. <laughs> she is a woman. Um, and it's pretty cool to think of, of being called a brother or sister by an apostle. I mean, you think about uh, eternal security, that would get me there, I would think. The Apostle Paul calls her a sister. She is also a supporter, or as the ESV translates, a patron. Okay, a supporter. This is most likely financially a supporter. Uh, and this would indicate that Phoebe was a well-to-do woman. We're not told how she uh, came to her wealth, but... In the list here, it says that she supported Paul's ministry. She no doubt supported the church at Sincrea. And Paul says she supported many, many other people as well. I think that Phoebe was one of these women, if, if you went over to her house for dinner and you looked at the fridge, there would be all these missionary magnets on the, on the fridge. People that she's supporting, praying for, being behind them. Again, we're not told how she came into this 
money, but we have other examples, one in particular, of a businesswoman who was, uh, was very successful. You might remember Lydia. Lydia, the seller of purple, she's from Thyatira. She happens to be hanging out by the river in Philippi where Paul goes to pray and there's this group of women. Paul shares the gospel with them and you have the beginning of the church at Philippi, which ironically leads then to Paul being arrested and the jailer and his family coming to faith in Christ. Lydia had a part in that and was a supporter and a businesswoman. And this is possibly what Phoebe was as well. By the way, I, you know, when you think about church history, there are so many examples like Phoebe, like Lydia, women of financial means who have a heart for gospel ministry and who leverage that, uh, that their finances in order to maximize gospel ministry. I think about, uh, I'm a fan of George Whitfield and I've read a lot about George Whitfield and uh, Whitfield had uh, Lady Townsend who funded much of his ministry and the orphanage and different things that he did. But even Jesus himself was supported by wealthy women. Here's the text, Luke 8. And the 12 were there with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, I'm going to guess you've heard of her, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. Wait, isn't Herod the king? Okay, we're in kind of upper class world there. And Susanna and many others who provided for them, this is Jesus and his disciples, out of their own means. And so the story from the beginning has included women like Phoebe and Lydia and, and Mary Magdalene and others who God blesses with financial means and they take that blessing and they use it to advance kingdom causes. Phoebe was apparently a woman like that. So she is a sister, she is a supporter, and thirdly, she is a servant, okay? A servant. Here's one very clear example of the fervent spirit that, that Phoebe had. Why does Paul say, hey, welcome Phoebe? And the reason is, Phoebe was the one who delivered what we call the book of Romans to the church at Rome. You wanna talk about a high level of trust. If you've just written the greatest theological treatise of all time, do you just give that to any, ah, hey you, just run this over to Rome, would you please? No, you're like, take this, <laughs> be very careful with this, lock and key this, get it to the church at Rome, and Phoebe, of all the people that I know in, this, in Corinth, you're the one I wanna take this, uh, to have, have take this. And so, she was obviously a very dear, servant of the church. Now, a few comments about a little debate that is in this text here. Uh, back to the text. Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria. Servant. That word is the word diakonos. Sound like anything you've heard of? Okay. This is the word that we get the, the office of deacon from. Now that same word is used many places in the New Testament to just basically mean servant, okay? And we would all acknowledge serving Jesus and being a servant in the church. This is a high virtue. This is a good thing. This is a high compliment for her. But it is also exactly the same word that is used in 1 Timothy 3 for the office of deacon. And so hence the, if you have an NIV translation or NLT, they translate it actually deacon. They say Phoebe, a deacon. Uh, the ESV, King James, New American, go with servant. And here's the, the, in truth, nobody's really sure, okay? We're not sure if he's 
praising her for being a servant or praising her for having an office uh, in the church. Um, Some churches go one way, some churches go the other. At the minimum, it is praising her for her servant spirit, and at the maximum, it's indicating that there was an office, uh, most often uh, called deaconess, related to Phoebe. Either way, I think we all would agree that the church rides on the backs of the faithful women. And that is true, I'm gonna give you a chance to clap in a moment. And that was a woman who started the clapping. Anyway, uh, my eyeball in our church, and I have to believe this is true everywhere else, is that oftentimes the servant spirit of the women of the church outshines that of the men. Now, I say that to praise the women, kind of challenge the men a little bit too, right? Uh, but praise God for the women of our, of our church. We have, there are Phoebes all over in our congregation who display the same kind of heart for the Lord, heart for kingdom work, no task is too small, you know, whatever I can do to help uh, Jesus, I wanna do it. And our church is totally dependent on the faithful servant-heartedness of, of the dear sisters of our church. And I think it's been a while since we've clapped for them. And so maybe now can we say, thank you, Phoebes of the church. So that's Phoebe. Next we have the very famous Priscilla and Aquila. Now it said Prissa, P-R-I-S-C-A. It's a shortened version of what she typically is known as Priscilla, but again, here's the text. Greet, greet, I'll put Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church that meets in their home. All right, so let's talk about Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, if you haven't read the book of Acts, these might be new names to you, but if you've read Acts, you know this couple plays a surprisingly large role in the story of the advancing of the gospel in the book of Acts. Uh, One of the things that's odd is that Priscilla is typically mentioned before Aquila. Now Priscilla's the girl, woman. Aquila is the man. Now in our culture today, maybe that wouldn't catch your eye, but in the culture of the first century, for the woman to be mentioned first, and then the, the man is a curious thing. And so people speculate about, like, why is she mentioned first here and in other places? And there's speculation that, you know, she was maybe the more gregarious, the more gifted, and, you know, maybe more well-known, possibly. And so that's why she was listed. We're not exactly sure. But as a man now pretty much only known as the husband of Jennifer, I can relate to this. What this couple provides for us is a wonderful example of a Christian couple serving Jesus together. And the difference and the power, the synergy of a husband and wife who unite around in their marriage a passion for Jesus Christ and the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila, an amazing couple. To give you some examples, here we're uh, you know, they, they were tent makers. And apparently they were pretty good at it because every indication is that Priscilla and Aquila also were financially 
quite well off. They traveled extensively. They had a home in Rome. And by the way, that home in Rome was large enough to host a house church in it. Now, in our modern American day, we're like, oh, yeah, they probably met on the back porch. No problem, okay? We're, we're not talking about America today. We're talking about first century Mediterranean, <laughs> uh, where the, the, you know, you think about the little house in the prairie. This is the little house on the Mediterranean. And these homes were tiny. This is before tiny house was cool. They are, they are, the normal house, I've been in, in some of the ruins of these things, are, they are so tiny, you can't believe anybody would live in them. That was the normal home. But Priscilla and Aquila, have a, they have a house in Rome, they travel extensively through Asia Minor, that house was big enough for them to have a, a bunch of people in it. It indicates that they were people of means. They served with Paul in Corinth and Ephesians. Ever hear of those places? They also famously were in Ephesus and they met this guy named Apollos. And Apollos was a very religious man. He was a religious teacher. He was extremely eloquent. He was an orator, but he did not know the actual gospel. And so Aquila and Priscilla, they, they, they pull Apollos aside and they explain to him Jesus and they explain to him the gospel and Apollos becomes a great defender of the faith in the first century, a great apologist for, uh, for the gospel and many people believe that he wrote the book of Hebrews. So you wanna talk about a, a couple who's having impact. One of the most important books in the Bible, possibly, probably written by somebody they led to faith in Christ. That's a pretty cool story. That's the nature of this couple. They love the Lord, they love the gospel, and the tent making was the side hustle. I think many couples get this backwards. Their other thing is the passion and the gospel is the side hustle. But for them, the gospel was the main thing and the, the money making was the side hustle. Such was their passion. Now I'm gonna pause right now and ask the couples of our church, how much of kingdom serving is going on in your marriage? You look at Aquila and Priscilla, and then you look at your marriage, I'm just asking, is there similarity? Is there dissimilarity? What are you doing in your marriage? I, I think that many Christian couples' marriages lack energy and unity because the unifying principle of their marriage is something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm asking the question today because there's a host of cheap substitutes. The Cubs are an insane cheap substitute. If that's the passion of your marriage, that's sad. Wine tasting parties are a cheap substitute for a marriage united around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just think many Christian marriages would be substantially improved if that couple was to actively serve Jesus together. It does something. Perhaps we should market our serving opportunities that way.
Does your marriage stink? Have we got the missions trip for you? So all married couples, Steve and Jennifer included, let's learn from Aquila and Priscilla, a wonderful couple. Look forward to meeting them someday in heaven. All right, here's the third, and this one is kind of fascinating as well, Rufus. Okay, look at verse 13. Greet greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Okay, Rufus, you probably didn't get up today and think, you know, I'd love to hear a sermon on Rufus today. Uh, But there's a truth here that I think is fascinating. So why do we focus on Rufus? Well, this requires a little New Testament Sherlock Holmes. So hang in there with me. If we go back to Jesus carrying the cross to Golgotha, okay, we just remembered this last weekend with Good Friday and Easter, If you know the story, Jesus has been flogged, he's been up all night, he's been beaten over and over again. I mean, the the fatigue and the weakness that he would be experiencing after that, you know, it's it's hard to think of walking to Golgotha, much less carrying the the, the side, it was the, the, the T of the cross, all the way up that hill. And so he stumbles, and what happens, Mark tells us in Mark 15, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. So Simon of Cyrene, the famous Simon of Cyrene, steps in, hoists that cross on his shoulders, and he carries it, presumably with Jesus following him. And Mark now includes a very curious detail in Mark 15 that This Simon of Cyrene is the father of Rufus. Now why would would you do that? It's kind of, you know, seems sort of irrelevant to the story, who his kids were, how many he were, what gender they were, what their names were. You know, it's just Jesus carrying the cross. Well, here's the Sherlock Holmes. Where was Mark when he wrote the Gospel of Mark? He was in Rome under the tutelage of Peter writing that Gospel. And so is it that hard to understand that he would say, uh, that he would include Rufus in in his gospel if Rufus is there in Rome with him? And that is one very solid possibility. And imagine how wonderful it would be to have in our church somebody who was an eyewitness to the crucifixion of Jesus. Imagine Rufus going to church and people all the time, hey, could you just, what did you see? What was it like? You know, how fascinating that would be. And so later then, Paul writes Romans, and he says, greet Rufus. Now, do we know that for sure? No. Is it possible? Yes, likely, maybe. It's interesting, okay? It's interesting. We're mining for gold here in Romans 16, and that's a very fascinating little nugget. All right, you're thinking to yourself, man, if we go this slow through the 26, this is gonna be a long sermon. And that's why I said, I just want to look at three of the famous ones and then pull back and look at this kind of like, rather than the trees, let's look at the forest here. What do we learn in Romans 16? The first thing that we see here is that the church, from the beginning, has spanned all classes, all races, all categories of society. 26 people are listed. There are two families named. There are at least five house churches. 
There is one set of twins, Tryphena and Tryphosa. There are Greek names, Latin names, Roman names, Jewish names, Gentile names. There are wealthy people. There are many slaves and freedmen and women. Eight of the names are female. There are very highly connected people in Roman society, and there are even a few from the imperial Roman house itself. What do we deduce from that? You look at the list, and you think to yourself, man, that church at Rome, they, it's almost like everybody was welcome there. It's almost as if the gospel of Jesus is for everybody. It's almost like it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter your status, it doesn't matter your financial condition, it doesn't matter uh, Jew or Gentile. It does not, it, it's like the gospel's for everyone. And that's basically the point that I'm making here. That the church spans all these categories. And it's, it's the, this church, it was a melting pot of every category of society. You know, if all you had was the book of Romans, you get to Romans 1 through 11, you've got deep theology. Like you're, I got the gospel. I understand how man is made righteous. But then you get to chapter 16, and you could only conclude that the gospel is not merely for the rich or the poor or the Jew or the Gentile, but that the gospel is for everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what your skin color, no matter what your story, no matter what your status, no matter, no matter who you are, Jesus died for you. And the Roman church reflected the cosmopolitan nature of the city that it was in. And many of you already know where I'm going right now because you've come to Bethel Church for a long time and if you heard it from me once, you've heard it from me a hundred times. That we will know the vitality of our outreach and our loving of our community when our church reflects the diversity of our community. And since we happen to live in one of the most diverse communities in all of the United States of America, whenever we see that diversity reflected within our church, this is something that we should celebrate. How often I've said, well, no, we're doing it good when we look like the mall. When you go to Bethel Church and you go to the mall and it looks kind of the same, the skin color is kind of the same, and the class is kind of the same, we'll know that we are reaching this community when we look like the mall. And we look at Romans and I think they look like the mall. If there was a mall there, there was this mail-in system for buying things that shut a lot of it down. But they hadn't discovered the Amazon yet, so I don't know what they named it. Anyway, um, I just think it's another opportunity for us to celebrate the wide reach of the love of God and to realize that right here in our room and you joining online, we got people from every kind of class of society and every kind of backstory. And this is what the church has been from the beginning. Because God loves people and because Jesus died for people, the gospel is for people, all of them, everyone. The second thing we see here is that 
and, and I'm pulling back from Romans a little bit here, that God views us in a corporate sense and he views us as individuals. So if we go back in our mind to Romans 6, let's say, and we learned about this wonderful doctrine of union with Christ. How does God make us righteous? Well, we look at Adam when Adam sinned. We were in union with him because we are part of humanity. When he sinned, we all sinned with him. I didn't even exist yet, but in a sense, we all, I sinned with Adam. He was my representative. But praise God, Jesus also, as the second Adam now, and because I am in union with him, when he died on the cross, I died with him. When he rose again, I rose again with him. He ascended to heaven. That life, that eternal life that is his as the son of God is also my life. We are in union with Jesus. You might remember the Sunday at the the. the uh, repelling rope and the carabiner, and I tried to illustrate how we're all in this with, with Jesus. And you could, you could get done with that, and you could be a little discouraged because it almost feels like, from the corporate sense of the gospel, that to God we're a number. That, that God just loves people generally, broadly. I'm just, you know, it's like going to a big high school. I'm just a number here, you know, and you would be wrong. And we get to Romans 16 and we realize that these are real people. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes down their names. And in that, we realize that God views us also individually. That God knows your name. That you, by yourself, are special to God. I think of the parable that Jesus told of the shepherd and the and the, the, you know, he had 100 sheep, and 99 were where they were supposed to be, but there was one missing. And Jesus says, the good shepherd leaves the 99 in order to go and to find the one. And what was he trying to help us understand about the love of God? That, 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 that he certainly loves all the sheep, but we see that he loves us individually. He loves us as ones, and he loves us as billions, with the kind of love that only God could have. But what an encouragement it is that Jesus loves the church and he loves every Christian in the church and he knows my name. The third thing is that great theology includes loving other Christians. Great theology includes loving other Christians. What is the greatest theological book ever written? This could be argued, but Romans would certainly be Probably the one that would be picked. Who's the greatest theologian that's ever lived? It would probably be, other than Jesus, the apostle. Paul, now Peter and John would probably argue the point, but I think I would probably lean towards, towards Paul. And over the years, I have had, I'd say many, uh, self-impressed theologians who have landed in our church and they wanna meet with me and they wanna figure out you know, what I think and what I believe or what we believe and very quickly it becomes evident this isn't about rejoicing in what we mutually agree, it is in finding the theological minutia that we don't agree on. And there are people that, I mean, they will argue the theological lint, like right down to the little, you know, the jot in the tittle. Uh, level of theology, and they do so often because they want to, they want to kind of, you know, 
Be impressive. Look what I know. Look what I can do. And my observation with people like that is often they don't get along with people. They know the theological lint, but they have a hard time being in a small group. And the small group has a hard time with them being in it as well. (laughs) Often these warriors for truth, they struggle to get along with people because they're oftentimes abrasive and condescending, know-it-all, self-righteous. And they fail to realize that love is theology as well. Love is theological. And then you come to the greatest theologian who's ever lived, writing the greatest theological letter that's ever been written, and you get to chapter 16, and it's not now, and wherefore, and therefore, and hitherto, and blah, blah, blah. He's like, hey, tell him I said hi. And don't forget to tell them I said hi. And all these people over here, love them, love them. Can't wait to see in person. In other words, you get to chapter 16, and it's just all this sort of lovey-dovey warmth and care, and what do we do with that? The guy that wrote Romans 1 through 11 writes Romans 16 as well. And what we see in this is that great theology includes love. It has to include love. If I speak with the tongue of men and angels but have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. So mark it down. If you can't love real people, other Christians in particular, your theology is trash. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 says. You're nothing, and all your knowledge is nothing if you can't love. And so we see in this just a wonderful example from the apostle of what Christian love looks like. Deeply rooted theological, hey, love you, which leads to my next point. And that is that I think we need to get better at our love language. And I'm talking about right here in our church. We need to get better with our our love language, okay? 26 names, every single one of them gets a personal greeting and many of them get more than a greeting. They get affirming, loving words applied to them, listen, Beloved Epinatus, Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord, my fellow workers, a mother to me. Who talks like this? I mean, this would get you kicked out of a lot of men's ministries. You start rolling out that kind of language, like, hey, you know. No, we don't talk that way. Why? Because we're men and we're masculine. And masculine men don't roll out the love word. Really? Who do you suppose is the most masculine, non-Jesus member in the history of the church? Again, I argue Paul. Here is a manly man, a manly Christian man. And how does he speak about other people? He's very comfortable using the word love, beloved. I remember years ago, there was a man in our church, and this guy was just like, I mean, rippling with muscles and, um, you know, just walked around like he was the, you know, the strongest man in the room, probably was. 
until I got there. Um, but I counseled with him. He could not bring himself to tell his children that he loved them. Is that strength? That's tremendous weakness. And similarly, within the church, strength, strong, say masculine Christianity, Christianity with hair on its chest, is also Christianity that is comfortable with saying, I love you. In fact, can I ask this question? Who is the last non-family member Christian that you said, I love you? Can you think of any? And men in particular, I'm, I'm kind of throwing down a challenge here. See in the Apostle Paul, the strongest, most masculine Christian man that you could ever meet. A person to admire, an example to follow. And hear the tender words that he uses for other people in the church. And I just, I want this to pull us as a congregation towards a more comfortable level of affectionate language towards one another. So many of us desperately need that. I mean, what a, what a blessing to go to church and to have somebody look you in the eye and to say, I just want you to know I love you. I love you. In a world of loneliness, in a world where many, many you know, men in particular grow up and don't hear their dad tell them that once, to find in the church masculine men who are willing to open their heart and to use language of affection, indeed language of love. Men, I throw that down as a challenge, okay? So let's get better at our love language around here. The last thing is a question, okay? Question. What could be better than being named by name in the book of Romans? Like, what could be, I remember as a kid, I used to think, oh, it'd be so awesome if I was in the Bible somewhere. You know, and, and of course, when your name's Steve, Stephen's the, as close as, I, as you get, uh, but it'd be so awesome to be in the Bible, wouldn't it? And you know what, it probably would be awesome to be in the Bible. Wouldn't it be awesome to be, if you could pick any book in the Bible to be in, the book of Romans? I mean, don't give me Leviticus, give me Romans. If I can be in a book, I wanna be in, I wanna be in Romans. Is there a better book to be in, even better than Romans, and even better than the Bible? And the answer is yes, there is. This is Revelation 20, the end of time. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life, the book containing the name of every single person who is under the grace of God, every single person who trusted and believed in Jesus' work on the cross, dying on the cross for their sins, that book contains the book of all the redeemed, of all the saved, the book of life. Those that are in that book are welcomed into eternal life and great joy with God forever and ever. And those whose names are not in that book are punished forever and ever. And the difference between these two is not who's good and who's not, because we're all not good. We're all sinners. 
The difference is those who are under the grace of God by faith in Jesus and those who are not. And I wanna just ask in a message about a bunch of names in the Bible, is your name in the book of life? Because even better than being in the Bible and even better than being in Romans is hearing your name read on that day. And if your name is not in that book, why not today trust in Jesus as your savior? That your name may appear in the most precious book, in the greatest list that there is. And we know that Phoebe will be there, and we know that Rufus will be there, and we, uh, we know that uh, Priscilla and Aquila, that their name is there. And we wanna make sure that your name is there as well. Here's the building, here's the steeple. But never forget, the church's people. Amen.